Social justice means applying the law equally to all people. But in practice, that doesn't always happen. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here at my law partner, Jack Dorora. We practice law. We seek social justice. On this show, we reveal the conflict between the two. You know, for a while, it was just us in the office over a cup of coffee talking about the news of the day with social justice issues dominating our culture. Our focus became, how do we as lawyers make a difference? And now it's not just us. Today, we have Jonathan Melrod. He's with us to discuss whether misogyny and white supremacy have become ingrained in the very fabric of our society. Wow. That's a big topic. Yeah, especially for three older white guys to talk yeah, about. It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Welcome, John. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. You know, maybe we're the ones that need to be talking about it the most. So. Yeah, I, you know, I think so. Um, misogyny. I think the word used to be uh, chauvinistic. But, uh, Jack, do you think there's a difference between those? I, I think if you want to get technical, there is. I mean, as far as I understand, chauvinism is this notion of superiority where misogyny, which is kind of a strange word when you think about it, refers to an actual hatred of or aversion to or a prejudice against women. So I think they're related, but misogyny is really serious and really bad. John, um, I read uh, excerpts of your book and the um, the uh, epilogue uh, to it and your, your uh, fight against cancer. Um, but I want to come back to this thought about misogyny. Uh, how does that fit into your life experience and to what you were writing in your book? Well, and that's a, a really good question because, you know, like like you said, I mean, how many old white guys are talking about misogyny and you know, white supremacy in these days, but the misogyny, and it is a strong term. I think it's a stronger term than sexism because when I went to work at the American Motors factory, which was for younger people, the fourth auto company in the United States that was much smaller and didn't survive, I was really quite flabbergasted by the behavior that was being either condoned or allowed to take to go to take place on the shop floor by the corporation. And I mean, I'll give you one example, which I think typified it. We had a newsletter and that was called Fighting Times. And we used that to expose a lot of the inequities or misbehavior of supervisory personnel in, in the factory. And this one woman had, because of her seniority, had ended up in final repair, which was considered a pretty plum job because you had a lot of overtime. You weren't on the assembly line. You were working to repair the cars offline. And at one point, she wasn't able to complete a certain repair, and her supervisor came up, and he told her, if it was up to me, women wouldn't be working in the factory. They'd be at home raising their families. And he then made her life literally miserable. I don't remember, it's been a long time, if she had a transfer out of that department or if the union was able to muzzle that foreman. But that wasn't, that wasn't an isolated incident. 
I mean, there was another foreman that we had this column in the newsletter called Scab of the Month, which for people who don't know, a scab is somebody who crosses a picket line. And Jack London had a famous quote about it's the lowest form of life on earth. And, you know, that's become down through the ages now, how we define somebody who really is, you know, sides with the management and is, you know, vicious toward the, you know, employees. But there was this one foreman named Steve Freeman. And he had taken an attitude that he was running a fiefdom in his section of the assembly line. And at one point, he went up to two black women and he pointed his fingers like this, like a gun. And he said, bang, bang, two dead blackbirds. And then he went up to one of them and said, I'd like you better if you weren't so flat chested. And another young Latina woman, he saw, she saw that he had a pack of chewing gum and she said, could I have a piece? And he said, yeah, if I can have a bite of your tits. And she was very naive, I think, very young and was completely shaken up when she called me over as her steward representative to tell me this story because she said, if my husband finds out about this, he'll never let me come to work here again and he'll come in here and take care of that foreman. So, you know, I could go on and on, but what, what we found as time went on that there was such an ingrained attitude, old boy network of how the factory was run that women were really looked at as, you know, objects to be, to be taunted or to be asked to go on dates. Some foreman would say, we'll give you a better job on the line if you go out with me. You know, I mean, it was pretty blatant stuff. And when we wrote about it, of course, it created a large controversy because committing those things to writing and squarely confronting the company with those kinds of charges that were all substantiated. Because later when we went to court on a defamation lawsuit, we had to substantiate every one of the statements as truthful that we had written. And we brought in, I think it was 55 fact witnesses to attest it everything that we had written. Yeah, but, I, I saw that in your uh, in your uh, book where um, uh, American Motors wasn't just sitting back uh, taking this. They uh, they challenged you at every opportunity. But let me go back to this idea about uh, white supremacy then. Uh, misogyny, as you're describing it, kind of fits in with white supremacy. But you're not talking about the Proud Boys and groups like that. You're just talking about men like us who are white have been in a power position in this country since its founding, and it's difficult to give it up. Well, that's part of it. But I, I will qualify what you're saying by an incident that occurred with me. And this was obviously pre-Proud Boys and that whole new sort of conglomeration of white supremacists. But... Um, I was sitting in the bar, which in Wisconsin is very typical after work, and I was drinking and I felt something sticking into my stomach. 
And I looked down and it was a 38. And the guy said to me, you're John Melrod. You're that Jew commie who puts out that Fighting Times newsletter. I'm a member of the White People's Nationalist Socialist Party. I'm a Nazi. And I said, whoa, this is a tough one to get out of. <laughs> um, so I called over the bartender, Jim Midori, and I said, Midori, give us both double shots. So we did them both like, you, you know, in Wisconsin, you know, took them down. And uh, right away I said, give us two more shots, double shots. So we started talking once things loosened up. And I said, look, his name is Dead Eye D. Marino. And I said, look, Dead Eye, you're in the maintenance department and your steward was fired about two months ago. Who was it that was out at the plant gates demanding that your steward be rehired and that it was an unjust discharge because he had had other forklift drivers stop work when one of the trucks was spewing radiator fluid and hot water up into the air. And the foreman ordered the driver to get back on the seat and drive it. And he said, yeah, you guys did that. So we started talking more and more. And I found that there were points of agreement that I could say to him, Dead Eye, how different are we really if we're both concerned that American Motors doesn't move jobs out of this town, if we make a decent living, if our families can come to work here. And by the end of it, he, you know, of course we were drunk by the end of it, you know, three <laughs> hours of double shots and it's pretty rough, but he was hugging me saying, Mel Roger, my union brother, and I support you. So, you know, I still believe that to this day that most people, I don't want to use the word redeemable because that sounds too pejorative, but that most people share common, decent interests. Now, it's hard to say that in these times because we've got a very strong MAGA contingent out there that are pretty hard to move off of the dime, you know, and their feelings of, you know, cultism and loyalty to the MAGA ideology. But it wasn't absent from our experience. And, you know, another time we went to march against the Ku Klux Klan in Tupelo, Mississippi, in about 19... 79 or early 80s. And we put out a flyer to all 7,000 workers, most of whom, by the way, were white, middle-aged guys who farmed during the day and worked second shift or, you know, worked first shift and then went home and farmed. And we wanted them all to know that a group of us were going to confront the Ku Klux Klan because they were anti-union, they were racist, and they had been attacking Black people in Mississippi. It had been a resurgence of the Klan at that period. So, you know, yes, we did have to confront that level of, um, you know, militant white supremacy. If I could show you, I can't do it on the computer, but there's a picture when we're marching through Tupelo with good old boys with long guns, you know, and they were just lining the road as we marched by to scare us. So, you know, it's not like this is all a new phenomenon in one sense. My sense, um, I want to go back to something you said about finding common ground. And it was if you made an exception for the MAGA group. But I think 
really it's a matter of the MAGA group probably doesn't have the opportunity to converse with people of, of a different train of thought. And I'm wondering, you know, if you were to sit down with a MAGA contingency at your favorite bar in Wisconsin and, and have a couple beers, you probably would find common ground. But the problem is we don't associate with those who are not like us. That's the big problem. I think that's really on point, Jack. Um, you know, today I, I, I talk to young organizers and I try and explain to them how they have to look at everybody that they're working with as an opportunity to bring them along, that we shouldn't create any walls, including, and I think your point is well taken, about MAGA. I guess I get carried away to some extent like everybody else, um, you know, and I have a, rel uh, you know, through marriage, a relative who's a you know, a, a MAGA fanatic. I mean, she calls the USA the United States of abortion and, you know, Joe Biden being a fascist liar. And, you know, it's a little hard to take. But I do agree that if we were sitting down over a couple of beers or a couple of shots, a little stronger than a beer, um, we could find common ground because the grievances that we both experience are not that far apart anymore. My um, brother-in-law is very similar to who you just described, John, and I've told Jack about him, but um, I got a chance to spend some time with he and my my uh, sister uh, over the weekend, and he was telling me how the uh, <laughs> the uh, Hollywood elite and billionaires are basically behind the child trafficking problem that we have in the United States. And, you know, I just chose not to, in, to debate him on that. But the rest of the evening was wonderful because we talked about cars and sports and right. our families. And so, you know, there is a lot of common ground, but then uh, sometimes it goes off the rails and I just shake my head. And regrettably, yeah. I, as much as, notwithstanding what I said five minutes ago, no one's ever accused me of being patient. So <laughs> I'm not especially geared for these conversations as much as I would advocate for them. Yeah, and but, you know, it also takes setting, creating the right environment. Like when we were building a rank and file caucus in the union to fight for more democracy, more transparency, more responsiveness to the rank and file. One of the things that we often did to bring people together were really big social events, picnics. And it was always a very mixed group of people. So our intent was to put people together so that artificial boundaries of race and sex and, you know, whatever, you know, they sort of dissipated when you were in that social setting. So it takes a really concerted effort. I'm not saying that John should invite, <laughs> invite you know, his relative over to, you know, have a sleepover. But, but, you know, I mean, I think that what you guys are implying is that we've created silos that we all live in. And we don't break out of those silos, unfortunately, to be talking to broader numbers of people. John, you mentioned Fighting Times was the newsletter that uh, you published um, when you were um, a member of the union and working in the auto industry. What's your thoughts on um, how the access to, to public discourse has changed since then with social media? Because, 
I'm sure back then, even with a newsletter, there was only a certain amount of reach for your your ideals. But now, boy, anybody with a computer can can you know uh, garnish a huge gathering. Well, let me just quickly mention: we mentioned fighting times a couple of times, and I'd like to just let your listeners know that the book I wrote is Fighting Times, Organizing on the Front Lines of the Class War. And if people go directly to pmpress.org, that's the publisher, and and type in the code FIGHTING in capital letters, they'll get it at a 40% discount. We wanted to make it available to anybody who was interested in reading it. Um, But, you know... Our, our, our newsletter, you'd be surprised. There were 7,000 people working in that plant in Kenosha. And there was a very, very wide, you know, spectrum of people from, you know, blacks who had come up in the, in the last migration to the North Chicago area who had come to work in industry in Wisconsin. You know, there were a lot of you know, white farmers that were hanging on to individual farms. And it was a pretty broad group. I think one of the differences was we live, <laughs> I think now in some ways we live in a post-fact world. People took what we were saying on, on face value a lot more. You know, we tried to be very fact-based. When we made an analysis of the auto industry, or when Renault, the French auto company, bought American Motors, we did a three-part series explaining why we were now part of an international conglomerate. And we had an octopus on the front page of the newsletter with a beret, because it was France, and the tentacles were a car in Spain, a car in Kenosha, a car in Argentina, in Belgium, And we educated people to the changes in ownership and what that would mean for us down the road. And most people accepted what we said. They didn't, there were no silos so much. There were always a few people that said, I don't want it. You know, I don't believe you guys. But people were willing to listen. But there's probably another fact, which is they saw us every day working next to them, being in the union, standing up for them, and being seen as real advocates for the working working people in the factory so that there was a fundamental basis for trusting us. Well, it seems to me that silos actually meet or, or actually meet an important need. And let me tell you what I mean by that. When we see anger, harsh words, generally those are based on fear. People are afraid of change. People are afraid of losing their position. And when they find a group of people who, with whom they resonate, that gives a feeling of security and comfort. And, and then eventually that morphs into sort of a, a wall against anything that could dissipate that security. In other words, you now don't want to listen to anything that could destabilize this thought pattern that you have that is so comforting. So, you know, to break down the silo, you've got to be able to meet people 
where they are in terms of that fear. You've got to be able to get to what it is that has them so angry. Why are they so afraid? And that's not an easy discussion. That's not given to pep rallies. That's given to small groups in a couple of beers, I think. I, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think when we're each in our groups, larger groups or larger silos, it's very difficult to break down those, those barriers. But, you know, there, that's why I, I stress so much to young people. Things don't happen overnight. Things don't change because you want them to. It takes a lot of day-to-day organizing, being with people, relating to them on the issues that they face, the issues that their kids face, you know, the, the various things that sort of force us into these defensive positions. And those have to be broken down, but they can only be broken down by people conscious of it. I mean, and it doesn't help when, you know, I had a lot of friends in Wisconsin who worked on the um, Hillary Clinton election with Trump. And they were really upset and appalled because they were working among all union people trying to get out the vote. And when Hillary made that statement about a basket of deplorables, it just wrecked havoc because that was like painting with a broad brush that all these redneck types out there, you know, looking kind of like us, (laughs) you know, were, you know, were deplorables. And, And then when they said to her campaign, we need her to come out here. And they were right. They only lost by 45,000 votes. We need her to come out here and campaign. They sent out her daughter, Chelsea Clinton, a young, wealthy white woman who had gone to some Ivy League college. You know, you can't break into that world when you're not from it or you don't even you're not even making an effort to be part of it. I think that basket of deplorables comment just speaks to the notion of no matter how smart you are, and Hillary Clinton is very smart, you're capable of making a bonehead comment to the public. Well, you wonder, I I didn't take that comment as being off the cuff. So somebody thought that that must have resonated somehow, and you think, (sighs) you know, having know a little bit about politicking just from my wife's uh, involvement uh you know a lot of times you try to come up with something that is going to be a home run instead of okay. a, you know a, I, I, a strikeout I, all right so let's go with that the person behind her oh, Clinton, as, yeah. as smart as he or she was was capable of a bonehead mm. mistake of glacier proportion um yes i like that um john we've um uh we love the conversation. Um, I'm wondering if you would be okay to come back next week and uh, we can finish talking to you about uh, your book and then uh, some of the experiences you have. Would that be okay? Absolutely. That sounds great. Wonderful. Look, We'll look forward to hearing from you uh, again shortly. Our thanks also to WOSU and our sound engineer, Dalton Jones. If you like what you've heard today, please tell a friend. We want this show to be more than just us. We'd like it to be all of us. We'll be back in another week or so with another important social justice issue. Until then, so long.